1974, Shaanxi Province, China. Yang Jiafa takes a deep breath to steady his nerves. His brothers gather around him, muttering indistinctly. They have been digging for a week, and instead of striking water as they hoped, they have only found broken bits of pottery, and now this. Before today, he shrugged off his brother's concerns that they were disturbing the land of the dead, but now he isn't so sure. A face stares up at them from the dirt, eyes unblinking. Thankfully, it's only more pottery, a statue. They must have uncovered the ruins of an old temple, and that would make this some kind of earth god. Disturbing it could bring them terrible luck, but they've worked too hard for too long to start over somewhere else. Their community needs water if they're going to make it through this drought. He tells his brothers to stop imagining things and being foolish. It's just more old junk. Time to haul it out, keep digging, and hope no one finds out. One month later, Zhao Kangmin feels the wind in his hair as he pedals his bicycle. The leader of the local farmer's cooperative reported to him that someone had found something that seemed to be part of an old statue. As the head of the museum in the nearby town of Lintong, he should come take a look. A jumble of emotions do battle in his stomach. As a historian, he is excited, but he's also worried about what he might find there. Only eight years ago, during the height of the Cultural Revolution, his association with relics from China's past caused him to be hauled before the Red Guards. He was accused of supporting feudalism and forced to listen as they read out his so-called mistakes. He had to join the guards himself for a time to avoid being punished. His excitement and his passion for history went out in the end, and he pedals harder. Almost another month later, Zhao Kangmin has recovered the shattered pieces found by the Yang brothers and transported them back to his museum in Lintang. There, he has been personally working to reassemble and restore them. When he finished, he had the first two of almost 8,000 life-size statues buried and forgotten for centuries. While digging their well, the farmers had stumbled across the world-famous Terracotta Army. Welcome to Throughlines. On this show, we are going to talk about old things, artifacts, even treasures, made by people who came before us. This season, we'll focus on items found in burial sites around the world. On this episode, we will take a look at China's terracotta army, found on the outskirts of the massive tomb complex of the legendary first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi. Our first two episodes covered artifacts that are somewhat lesser known, but today our focus is nearly a household name. The neat ranks of stoic faces are an iconic image, and over the years millions of people have traveled to see them. And some of the figures have even traveled the world themselves on museum tours. They have penetrated popular culture, hosted world leaders, and served as pawns in the battle for China's political future. The story of their discovery is amazing, a one in a million coincidence. Next, we will take a look at their creation and their loss to history, and the second life they have been given since their discovery. But let's start with the basics. The Terracotta Army was discovered on a site that we now call the Mausoleum of the First Qin Emperor, recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site today. 
there have been over 600 sites identified as containing burials or important archaeological remains within the 22 square mile area. At the center of the site is a roughly 165 foot tall pyramid that sits over the burial chamber of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi. Far from just a simple grave, however, the site is more like a small town itself. Underground, the tomb is surrounded by inner and outer walls, as well as other burials and buildings. Outside the walls of the tomb are the remains of living quarters for the thousands of workers who came and lived there while building the mausoleum. When I first learned that the Terracotta army was buried with the first emperor, I assumed that they were located right there in the central area. In reality, the pits containing the soldiers are just shy of a mile to the east of the main complex. There are four pits in total that contain the figures of the Terracotta army. The Yang brothers happened upon the far southeastern corner of the pits, almost missing it entirely. The pit they found is known today as pit number one and it is the biggest. It measures approximately 750 by 200 feet and contains around 6,000 soldiers. Pit number two contains around 1,300 figures, featuring more specialized units like cavalry and chariots with horses. Pit number three contains only 68 figures and one four-horse chariot. Pit number four is empty and remains a mystery what it was meant to contain. Of all the nearly 8,000 figures that have been uncovered, not a single one was found completely intact. To learn how they were destroyed, why they face east, and why one pit was left unfinished, we need to take a step back and learn a little bit more about the world in which they were made. I've briefly mentioned that the Terracotta Army is associated with the burial of the first emperor of China, but before he gained that title, he was a young boy named Ying Zheng. After the death of his grandfather and the unexpected death of his father shortly afterwards, Zheng inherited the throne of the Kingdom of Qin at the young age of 13. He was born at the tail end of a time in Chinese history that we now call the Warring States period. At the time of his birth, there were seven independent states waging on and off wars with each other for territory. Zheng's kingdom of Qin was the westernmost of these seven kingdoms. Thirteen years after taking the throne, Zheng would dedicate himself to war and conquest in earnest. With his advisor Li Si at his side, Zheng and the Qin defeated all six of the other kingdoms and claimed their territory in only nine years. The area that the Qin conquered roughly corresponds to eastern China today, and it was shocking that they were able to subdue such a large amount of territory in such a short time. But this was more than just a military victory. It was an ideological one. You've probably heard of Confucius, an ancient Chinese philosopher who is one of the most influential thinkers in history. His philosophy centered on ideas of personal ethics and morality, and the idea that people are basically good and respond well to being treated well. Six of the warring states ascribed to these ideas and their governance was heavily influenced by them. The Qin, on the other hand, were legalists. Historian John Mann describes legalism in this way. It is, quote, the mirror image of Confucianism. People are idle, greedy, cowardly, treacherous, foolish, and shifty. Confucius's idea that they respond well to good treatment is simply naive. The only way to rule is to entice, terrify, reward, and punish." End quote. Qin society was built on what John Mann calls a triumvirate of powers, a highly trained professional military, dedicated farm laborers, and the law. That last point is important. 
A strong centralized government is key to legalist rule, with a law that is strict, detailed, and applied, quote, uniformly and without exception, end quote. The Qin victory showed the power of such a philosophy. There was no magic, no secret weapons, or new technology that their enemies didn't have. It was simply flawless organization and ruthless efficiency. Dedicated and well-equipped soldiers marched relentlessly eastward, supported by rock-solid supply lines and effective administration. This was to be the start of a new era in Chinese history. For the citizens of the newly conquered states, life would not simply be business as usual, but with a different name on top. Sweeping changes came under Qin rule. All remnants of the previous feudal system were swept away and replaced by three dozen so-called commanderies that had parallel civil and military administration. These were further divided into prefectures, districts, and so on, and they all ultimately reported back to the emperor. Almost everything was standardized. Weights and measures, styles of clothing, riding, currency, and even the width of axles on horse-drawn carriages. The newly unified state also provided the emperor with a huge pool to draw from for forced labor, and he did so. Massive campaigns of road building were launched, including an almost 500-mile north-south highway. He also strongly reinforced the borders of the new state, building many forts and reinforcing existing border walls. Many of these walls were joined together into a larger one, the precursor of what we know today as the Great Wall of China. As for the ruling families of the conquered states, they were relocated to the capital of Xianyang, where the emperor could keep an eye on them. For the now victorious Zheng, the dawning of this new era of his own making called for a new name for himself. No longer would he merely be Ying Zheng, King of Qin. Now he would be known as Qin Shi Huangdi, the first sovereign emperor of Qin. This title is grand enough as it is, but quite a bit is lost in translation. The Shi in his new title indicates that he is the first of a new dynasty. Another translation renders Huangdi as August Emperor rather than Sovereign Emperor. These titles are strongly associated with mythical rulers and gods from Chinese mythology known as the Three Sovereigns and the Five Emperors. By using this title for himself, he was proclaiming that he was their equal. I have also seen this name translated as August Thearch, Thearch being a title for a divine ruler, which is maybe a little bit closer to the intention. He was also claiming the mandate of heaven, an important philosophical and religious concept that granted divine right to rule as his own. As John Mann put it, he was declaring himself, quote, imperial ruler, god, sage, and ancestor all in one, end quote. A man of great modesty. So, with the warring states unified and Qin Shi Huangdi on the throne, we can turn to the creation of the Terracotta Army. Preparations for the tomb of Qin Shi Huangdi began when he was still the 13-year-old Ying Zheng, King of Qin. It would take a long time to plan and build a tomb fit for a king, so they started early. But after becoming emperor, the scope of what was required to bring him to the afterlife inadequate glory increased dramatically. In the same vein as his new name and the start of a new unified China, Qin Shi Huangdi's tomb displayed a new direction in the development of Chinese art. Prior to the time of the Qin, Chinese art was very conceptual. This is in distinct contrast to Western art, which very early on developed a heavy emphasis on portraiture and realistic depictions of specific people and places. Early Chinese art was much more focused on concepts, 
on capturing the essence of an idea or a person. In ancient Chinese culture, particularly in religious and ceremonial contexts, it was rare to find a depiction of something from the real world. Ladislav Kessner writes in the Art Bulletin that, quote, There is in early Chinese art a near total absence of images of both supernatural and this world authorities and their activities, end quote. This began to change over time throughout the Warring States period, and we can see this change in the dramatic plans for the first emperor's tomb. Historian Sima Kwan tells us this in his famous work, The Records of the Grand Historian. Quote, the laborers built models of palaces, pavilions, and offices and filled the tomb with fine vessels, precious stones, and rarities. Artisans were ordered to install mechanically triggered crossbows set to shoot any intruder. With Quicksilver, the various waterways of the empire, the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers, and even the Great Ocean itself were created and made to flow and circulate mechanically. With shining pearls, the heavenly constellations were depicted above, and with figures of birds in gold and silver and of pine trees carved of jade, the earth was laid out below." End quote. The description of this artistic vision is awe-inspiring, and as a microcosm of Qin Shi Huangdi's realm, it could not be complete without his army. Although part of an emerging art tradition, the artisans made use of long-established methods in the creation of the army. The ancient Chinese were masters at working with bronze and had developed and perfected assembly line production for over a thousand years by the time of the Qin. The use of molds allowed for large quantities of objects such as urns to be made quickly and allowed for easy customization through interchangeable parts. The terracotta army was made in much the same way, although with clay rather than bronze. Experts are divided on how exactly they were made. Most seem to agree that the heads were cast from separate molds than the bodies and added later. Most also agree that the legs were made by hand, providing a solid base for the statues. Some contend that the torsos and arms were also cast from molds and assembled before the statues were fired in a kiln, and others say that the torsos were made by hand as well, using a method of coiling layers of clay and then smoothing them off. Whatever the exact details of the method, it is clear that the same meticulous organization that brought the Qin victory and conquest was brought to bear in the construction of the first emperor's tomb and the terracotta army. Another logistical aspect was the painting of all the figures. Next to the building and assembling of all of the statues, the painting may seem incidental, but it was no small task. The unique shades that were used had to be produced through intensive chemical processes which required teams of alchemists to oversee and before being painted, the clay had to be sealed with multiple layers of lacquer. Lacquer comes from the sap of a specific tree, but only a very small amount can be taken from each one. This process usually also kills the tree. Researchers think that each soldier could have required the lacquer from as many as 25 trees. This means that it took between 150 and 200,000 trees to complete the entire army. If you're like me, it may come as a bit of a surprise to hear that the terracotta army was originally brightly painted. The image of rows and rows of flat gray soldiers is so iconic that it seems wrong to think of them wearing black armor with red accents or administrators wearing green and purple robes. In the artistic renderings that I have seen, the colors seem almost garish or out of place. But this reaction reveals a cultural conditioning from our own art tradition. We think of classical Greek and Roman sculpture as plain gray stone or pure white marble because that is how those artifacts appear today. 
But in reality, many famous pieces of art from those time periods, such as the Parthenon or the Venus de Milo, were originally brightly painted. The passage of time removed their original character and revealed a new one, one that we have come to admire and emulate from the Renaissance until modern times. One of the most famous aspects of the army is the individuality of the soldiers. In fact, I will be willing to bet that everyone has heard the idea that each statue was based on a specific real person in the army. As much as I hate to ruin a cool story, this isn't true. For starters, it probably took around 10 years to create this amount of figures, so how could it represent the actual soldiers in the army at any given time? For another, researchers have identified that there are only eight basic facial shapes present among the army. This allowed the artisans to produce heads and faces quickly and consistently and then lend them personality by sculpting the features into different expressions. The figures represent the different roles within the army, infantry, archer, charioteer, and so on, and were grouped in realistic military formations. The poses are standardized for each soldier type, and within each formation there is enough differentiation of facial features to give the illusion of true individuality. But for the army as a whole, that isn't really the case. The army sits between the emerging realistic philosophy of art and the previous conceptual tradition. In one way, they are strikingly new, part of an emerging concept known as Ming-Chi, spirit vessels. The term spirit vessel refers to objects meant to be exact stand-ins for humans and animals in funeral and religious ceremonies. But they don't quite seem to fit that category, because despite the realistic nature of each figure, the army as a whole is not a realistic portrayal of an army. Rather, it is an idealized one. The emperor was not trying to build a replica of his earthly army. He was trying to create a perfect supernatural one for the afterlife. Here's what I mean. The soldiers are all in their physical prime. As John Mann puts it, there are no, quote, pimply teenagers, end quote. No one older than young adulthood, in fact. No one balding, no one overweight. No one with any visible injuries, wounds, or disfigurements. There are no racial differences depicted among the soldiers, a feature that would be shown in tomb figures from later dynasties. Rather than reflect an individual personality, the physical attributes of the soldiers reflect their proper place in the hierarchy of the army. The infantry soldiers all have basically the same hairstyle, officers and cavalrymen another. The rank and file soldiers are all roughly the same height, averaging five feet, 10 inches, while officers all stand taller, around six feet, three inches tall. The figure of a general stands an imposing six feet, five inches tall. Higher ranks literally stand taller than lower ones. In the details of the army's representation, we can see the Qin ideals of uniformity and function as part of something greater, fulfilled. Each soldier is identified only by their function in the larger unit. And that function was to stand forever on guard, facing the east, the ancestral home of their master's enemies an eternal reminder of the territory he conquered and that his vigilance against them would last even beyond his earthly life. And as we will see, they were right to look to the East for threats to Qin dominance. So far in our journey, we have looked at the methods used to build the army, their appearance and their place in the evolution of Chinese art. If we were to leave the story here, we would expect the army to stand at attention forever guarding the memory of the great founder of a great dynasty. So how did they come to be broken and lost to history? And just how long did this great dynasty last? With the establishment of a unified Qin state, 
Qin Shi Huangdi proclaimed that his dynasty would last for 10,000 generations. In reality, it would only survive for four years after his death. We looked earlier at the massive building projects that were undertaken, oftentimes forcibly, by the Chinese people at the direction of the first emperor. But it seems that in practical terms, most of that work was left to ministers and administrators. The emperor himself seems to have spent a lot of his time traveling his new lands, making a show of power and placing bronze monuments to his own glory on every sacred mountain he could find. It was on one of these expeditions that he died unexpectedly, only 11 years after the unification. The cause of the emperor's death remains frustratingly vague. As you might guess from the grandeur of his tomb and his journeys to build monuments to himself, the ideas of immortality and legacy were forefront in his mind. He was also definitely searching for paths to physical immortality, to some degree, although historians are divided on how obsessed he actually became. Some think that he had been regularly drinking so-called elixirs of immortality brewed for him by his alchemists, concoctions that contained many things we now know to be poisonous, like mercury. Over time, this caught up with him causing his death. But it could also have been something much less ironic, like a heart attack or an aneurysm. Shockingly, he died without a firm succession plan, and a group of unscrupulous ministers were able to manipulate Hu Hai, one of his younger and more ineffectual sons, onto the throne where he became a convenient puppet. Rule under Hu Hai became more exploitive and brutal, and he himself became more paranoid under the manipulative guidance of his counselors. In a short time, the new nation fractured under the pressure and rebellions broke out. This ushered in a period of chaos that saw many warlords rise, grapple for territory, and fall. Many of these revolutionaries harkened back to and claimed lineage from the previous kingdoms. Eventually, a warlord known as Xiang Yu gained great power and succeeded in overthrowing the Qin, capturing the capital of Xianyang. Although Shi Huangdi was already dead and buried, construction of the massive complex around the burial site was still underway. During his push for supremacy, forces under Xiang Yu's control attacked the building site of the Terracotta army. The team of forced laborers now became a makeshift combat force and were able to repel the attackers. But before long they returned, and this time the workers fled, leaving the figures unguarded. Historians think that the reason Xiang Yu's forces attacked the army pits was to loot them, but they weren't after treasure. Each soldier was outfitted with a real weapon to carry into the afterlife. To Xiang Yu, the Terracotta army was not merely window dressing for a tomb, it was a massive storehouse of arms to supply his own troops. As his forces swarmed in, they were undoubtedly carrying torches to light their way in the pitch dark. At some point, a fire was started. Whether it was intentional or accidental, it caused the rebels to flee as the pits filled with smoke. The scarce supply of oxygen in the underground pits meant that the blaze did not rage for long, but rather than going out entirely, it gently smoldered in the massive wooden timbers of the roof, until one by one they collapsed, crushing the entire army to pieces beneath them. Xiang Yu was eventually defeated by another warlord named Liu Bang. Today, Liu Bang is remembered as Emperor Gaozu, founder of the Han Dynasty. Under the Han Dynasty, Chinese rule returned to Confucian principles, and taxes and forced labor were reduced. Unlike the Qin, the Han Dynasty endured for almost 400 years. So, call that a win for Confucius. After the chaos of the fall of Qin and the rise of Han, the Terracotta army was quickly forgotten. 
The pyramid where the emperor's body lies was known, but it seems that the details of the sprawling mirror world he built were lost. The great Chinese historian Sima Quan, who gave the description of the rivers of mercury and constellations of pearls in the emperor's tomb, makes no mention of the army. Generations passed and dynasties rose and fell, all while the army lay broken and forgotten under the earth. But for all the time that passed, the world they emerged into was shockingly similar to the one in which they were made. China had recently undergone a revolution that placed Chairman Mao and the Communist Party in control, and massive centralized power was being exercised over the common people by the new government. In 1974, when the army was discovered, Mao was aging, and as he struggled to retain power and control, the age-old battle between Confucianists and legalists was brought to the forefront in explicit terms. Qin Shi Huangdi was no longer cast as a tyrant and mass murderer, but revered as the great founder of the nation. The Qin unification became an analogy for the Communist Revolution, and in one meeting of the Communist Party Congress, after Mao was accused of being a tyrant, his response signaled that he planned to take the revolution even further than Qin Shi Huangdi. Quote, to the charge of being like the first emperor, of being a dictator, we plead guilty, but we need to add to your accusations. They are not enough. End quote. In fact, it was this political context that led to the site being further excavated. After the first warriors were found and reconstructed, a party memo stated, quote, The discovery of the warriors has a great importance in helping us to evaluate the first emperor in studying the struggle between legalism and Confucianism and the political, economic, and military circumstances of the Qin dynasty, end quote. Archaeologists were then sent out to further investigate the site, and with the assistance of the Yang brothers and Zhao Kangmin, the pits were mapped out and the rest of the army was discovered. Today, the army that was never meant to be seen by living eyes is one of the most popular tourist attractions in the world. The reconstructed warriors stand in precise ranks in the now open pits, to be seen by millions of visitors every year. I think it's fitting that here at the end of our story, we have returned to the people we started with. We have looked at the Terracotta Army through the eyes of emperors, philosophers, and revolutionaries. But they have changed the lives of regular people more than any others, from the prisoners and commoners forced into labor to the people who discovered them in 1974. For some, their involvement with the Terracotta Army has been positive. For Zhao Kangmin, the archaeologist and lover of history who ran a small museum in Lintong, his part in the story was a defining event in his life. He proudly recalled that a high-ranking government official told him he had made a great contribution to his country. After his retirement, he would return to his museum in Lintong day after day until his death and sit near the original terracotta warriors that he restored personally. He talked with any visitors who were interested and was more than happy to sign autographs that read, quote, Zhao Kangmin, the first discoverer, restorer, appreciator, name giver, and excavator of the terracotta warriors, end quote. For Yang Jafa and his brothers, their involvement was not so pleasant. They, like many other farmers, were removed from their homes and relocated when the government took over management of the site. To be fair, they were given a small stipend to live on, but they had no education and no skills other than farming. The only way Yang Jafa could make a living was to be a sort of mascot for the Terracotta Army. He was put on display and brought out to meet foreign dignitaries. 
including a particularly awkward handshake with Bill Clinton. Like Zhao Kangmin in the Lingtong Museum, Yang Jiafa sat in the Qin Shi Huangdi Museum day after day to sign autographs, but unlike him, he did not relish the attention. As he signed his name with an oversized sharpie, he hid his face from the long lines of tourists with a handheld fan. On the table in front of him was a single sheet of paper with a simple request in both Chinese and English. No pictures. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed researching and creating it. If you would like to see a full list of the sources that I referenced, please check out the show notes. If you'd like to learn more about Qin Shi Huangdi, I will again direct you to the amazing Our Fake History podcast, who did a three-episode series about his life and the myths surrounding him. And if you happen to find yourself in China, please take the time to visit Xi'an and see the mausoleum of the first Qin emperor for yourself.